Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. They run one vehicle up behind him and run another one up and parked in front of the car and opened fire. Dad bailed out and he said he... He said, I just ran. He said, and I ran hard. He said, there was two barbed wire fences. I don't remember jumping either one of them. <laughs> <laughs> On this episode of the Bear Grease podcast, we're going to continue building a biographical sketch of Louis Dell and Charlie Edwards, two Southern characters known for being turkey hunting outlaws, but also beloved men in their community by most. We'll be diving into the moonshine incident and giving some backing for why people said they were rough men. You're going to hear about some fighting and some gunplay. So if you're sensitive to such talk, be advised. But if you want a picture into the American South, these guys will deliver. These men were connected to the land and it shaped their identity. Having known them my whole life, I'm unashamed by how much I like these guys but conflicted by how much I disagree with some of the stuff they did. Life is a paradox, and linear equations built for judgment don't always add up. This episode is a character sketch of two modern, colorful characters. Their lives were just straight-up entertaining and intriguing. I doubt you're going to want to miss this one. And hey, stick around to the very end, and you'll hear me and Game Warden Jimmy Martin relive the run-in that I had with him when I was 16 years old. According to game laws, they were poaching. According to our forefathers, they were doing what they were supposed to. They grew up with that mentality right here in this mm-hmm. valley. And uh, it still exists to a point we're more civilized now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. In part one of our Genuine Outlaw series, we introduced you to two brothers by the name of Louis Dell and Charlie Edwards from Big Fork, Arkansas in the Western Washitals. If you haven't listened to it, you've got to for all this to make sense. Charlie passed away in 2014 at the age of 73 and Louis Dell in 2021 at the age of 76. I expressed my inner conflict in telling their story because there is a risk of glamorizing, breaking the laws, and outlawing. But being true to our mission, I love telling the stories of people who live their lives close to the land, especially in the South. And without a doubt, my whole life, I've been intrigued by these men. I think it's an apropos time to clarify the intent of telling this story. It is not to decide if breaking game laws is right or wrong. We all know the answer to that. What it is, is an intriguing look into human nature. Often we gravitate towards stories that are far outside of our personal experience. I've never been an intentional lawbreaker or fighter, but these boys were. They're real deal characters that shaped my view of rural Arkansas. You see, I grew up in the same community as Louis Dell and Charlie, and I was heavily influenced by my father, Gary Newcomb, a small-town banker who would come home from work and tell me stories about people he'd met and done business with. At the time, he nor I would know how influential his storytelling would be in my life. It taught me to value people of all types, and he told me stories about Louis Dell and Charlie But the knowledge of these stories didn't push me to want to break game laws. It was clear he valued them for other reasons, and he still does. A window into their life gave me a broader picture of the reality of the world, a world that he knew I would have to live in. The intent of exploring this story is to help us evaluate our own biases, to search for hypocrisies, and to see the bigger story that most people have. Humans can't be described in totality by a single descriptor or label. Life is sometimes gray. We don't function well in those gray areas. Lastly, I hope this story fortifies a culture of putting the wildlife resource first by obeying science-backed game laws. Being a poacher isn't complex. You either is one or you ain't one. But this story about Louis Dell and Charlie, their life is complex. And I'm not trying to decide whether I'm okay with people being outlaws. I'm trying to make sense of why people love them so much and in the same breath understand how they were such rough characters. A little backstory from episode one, we learned that the Edwards brothers came from a family of moonshiners and their uncle and his coon dog were killed by police in a 1926 traffic stop gone bad. These men were known for killing a lot of turkeys and evading the law with almost a supernatural ease, and they worked hard at everything they did, 
including outlawing. We learned they were generous and forthright, genuine. Even people use the descriptor of pure. But one thing is for sure. You didn't want to cross them. Here's Stoney Edwards, the son of Charlie. He'll get us going into a string of stories highlighting their rougher side. Get ready for a few rumbles. They were as nice as can be, either one of them. But uh, they didn't have a whole lot of push to them. The fuse was about that long. And as long as everything was going good and you were treating them as well as they would treat you, then you're fine. But then you get on the bad side and they were rough fellers. I mean, they didn't believe in, oh, we'll call the law on you. They were going to take care of it theirself. Do you remember several years ago the... Oh, uh, what was the guy's name? How big an old boy are you? You remember oh, who yeah, I'm talking R. D. about? R.D. Mercer. R.D. Mercer. Well, you know Pete Hillard mm-hmm. and Jackie Ryan. They got this great idea to call Uncle Ludell because they knew that that would stir him up. And I don't remember who they put they on the phone. They were going to prank call him. Oh, they did. They got on the phone. Well, we lived over here at Dilbeck Place at the time, and I was about 20, I guess. And here come Uncle Udell sliding into the yard. I mean, he said, y'all get in. We got to take care of. <laughs> now, you think I'm joking, but when we left the house, every one of us had a gun in our hand. This wasn't going to be no barroom brawl crap. This was when well, we got down there, and it was Jackie and Pete. <laughs> and, uh, so, Louisdale, I mean, Louisdale was ready to... It was, he, was, he was ready for a shootout. Whatever it was going to take. Him and Dad both were really hard people, or that's how they came off. When you grow up like they did, though, it was, you got to have that shell out there. That was their protection. And then when they left here and went to the city, they were dumb hillbillies, according to the city people. But they had that shell. Well, everything with them two was a fight. They didn't believe in all the talking stuff. You just got whopped. I mean, I've heard stories of a lot of bar fights. (laughs) Yeah. If only that phone call could have been recorded. Whatever they said pushed Louie Dell to the edge. These brothers had a stark and temperamental sense of justice. They didn't do well with a lot of talking. Here's Neil Taylor, a good friend of the brothers. You know, old Louie Dell... There's a lot of people that want to make Louie mad. Hmm. But I'm going to tell you what, and you can make him mad pretty easy. Charlie, it was hard to make mad. But Charlie is the one you wanted to watch if he got mad. Why's that? Because he was tougher and meaner than Louie. Everyone I spoke with said the same thing about Charlie. He was tough. Here's Stoney. And, for a little info, the candlelight is a bar on the edge of Oklahoma. I was probably six, and uh, he had been over at the candlelight. They were shooting pool, which my dad loved to shoot pool. And and he'd won a few games, and he always wore a great big old black leather cowboy hat. I mean, I remember him wearing one until the brim on it was just nubs. And he had sewed it back together himself two or three times. (laughs) He, he was over there that night, and a, a f- man stood up and said, I bet I can knock that some hat off, and he won't do a thing about it. Well, 
he made about two steps across the floor before dad hit him with the cue stick. Mm. And he went down. He was done. A couple of weeks later, they cornered dad at the to-go, you know, beer to-go, and uh, went shooting at him. Well, dad bailed out of the car and off out across the field. These are the guys field. retaliating for yeah. what had happened. Well, they, they run one vehicle up behind him and run another one up and parked in front of the car and opened fire. Really? And dad Trying bailed. to kill him? Yeah. He, dad bailed out and he said, he, he said, I just ran. He said, and I ran hard. He said, a couple hours later, he was coming back wanting to get back to the car, you know. And uh, he said, there was two barbed wire fences. I don't remember jumping either one of them. <laughs> <laughs> dad got into more of that stuff than uh, Uncle Udell did. Uncle Udell was a little, he was just as rough, but he was a little more settled about it. Mm. But as far as their heart went, they'd do anything for, for a friend mm-hmm. or for somebody that needed them, but they didn't want everybody to know about it because that would affect that shell mm. that they wouldn't be tough guys anymore. Interesting analysis from Stoney about them developing a hardened shell. It seems the catalyst of this hardness worked both ways. It made them deeply loyal and devoted to friends, and it made them dangerous if you cross them. Y'all remember Andy Brown. Here he is recalling a story of a bar fight in Texas. If you remember, these brothers worked out of state a fair bit in the city. Oh, Louisville tells a story about when they were down there in Dallas and Fort Worth. He said, got down there one night, said, went to a bar. And he said, uh, we walked in. He said, I ain't been in that bar 10 minutes. He said, he said, oh, broke loose back there in the dang pool room. <laughs> he said, I looked around and I said, where's Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said, heck, I went back there and he said, hey, old Charlie. And he said, man, he's find a big old boy. <laughs> and he said, he said, that old boy had him whooped, he said. And he said, about that time. He said that old boy went to screaming and take it on, and he said, he finally looked, he said old Charlie was just taking biting clubs out of his side <laughs> like that, trying to get away from him. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, old, old Liddell said, yeah, had him whooped, he said. He went to bite their plugs out of him. Wow. Um, I can imagine a few people got surprised by these outwardly unassuming hillbillies. You remember Stoney mentioning Jackie Ryan prank calling Louie Dell. Well, this is Jackie telling a story about the brothers. I was doing a job in Dallas, and Ed went down to a club, and uh, Charlie playing pool, and and uh, he got in fight. I mean, they get he gets uh, you know it's over money. I'm sure they were probably having a bet, and Charlie he was good. Both of them was good pool shooters, mm. and uh, but. But he gets in the fight in there, and there was other people around, and and uh, uh, Louis got out there truck and got his pistol, and and I think the fight had had moved outside or got outside, and there was people around him while he was had that pistol out, and then and was keeping everybody off of him while they was uh, fighting, you know, and make sure nobody <laughs> got involved, you know, <laughs> and uh, I think Charlie had used a cue stick on the guy, you know, and. And there, uh, there was another part of it where he uh, he chomped down on his ear. I know he did, but he's uh, and Charlie had false teeth, and they he he bit a chunk out of the guy's ear. That's what he did. 
These guys weren't afraid to pull a gun or to bite you. They played by their own rules. Like Andy said, that's just the way it happened. Here's Andy with another one. They were in Dallas or Fort Worth putting in drop ceilings for Walmart store. And uh, anyway, everything was kind of open. And anyway, they had some old boys come in there and kind of put in on them. And uh, it was Charlie and Louis Dale and uh, Vernon Ryan. Vernon was working with them. This guy was yeeing with with Louisdale. He was up on a scissor lift. And Vernon said the whole time he's yeeing and telling Louisdale what he's going to do to him, he said, Charlie is slipping up on that guy. And he said he's got a claw hammer. He said he's got it in his hand. And Vernon, of course, Vernon says he's watching all this and watching Charlie. And he said Charlie walks up behind that guy. He said, with a claw in, and he draws back, and Vernon said, I went, whoa, 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 like that, you know, and that guy <laughs> saw him, but he said Charlie was fixing to knock him in the head with that claw hammer. Hmm. But anyway, the guy kept telling old Louisdale, I'm going to go get get my bunch, and I'll be back, and Louisdale said, that's exactly what you guys need to do. And he said, when that guy walked off, Louisdale got down off his scissor lift, went to his truck, and I don't know, Clay, if you've ever heard about the trusty 2535 in these Mm-mm. stories. He had a rifle. That's all he ever deer hunted with. And anyway, he went and got the twenty-five thirty-five, put it on the scissor lift, and got back up in the deal. It just kept working. It just kept working. But Ludell was a great shot. I mean, when you run when you run deer with dogs, you've got to be. Hmm. And then boys, they wouldn't have knew what happened if they'd come back. With they never came oh, back. No, they never come back. Thank God. <laughs> you know, Vernon's scared to death. They're going to come back. Yeah, man. Sounds like you wouldn't want to cross these boys. And I'll tell you another thing that would not be advisable would be messing with their dogs. This is a longtime friend of the Edwards brothers, Jerry Dean Pickett. Well, it was deer season, and we had been running into dogs. There's a gap in there. Dogs went over the gap. We didn't kill the deer, but anyway, the dog, we was checking the dog. We had them old tracking collars on and we come around there catching the dogs, and he said, one of my dogs right up here, on the, right up here, and we drove up to this fella's house. He got out, and he said, well, my dog's around here, right here close. He said, yeah, your collar's over there on my wood pile. He said, I killed your dog up there in the gap. Lou ain't never threatened him. He ain't never said nothing, but he just kept walking to him, and when he got in hands of him, he spat him and bounced him across <laughs> them rocks. And there's a fella from Texas hunting with this other fella. I don't forget his name. And uh, Louie went to working on him. And I stand <laughs> Beating there. the tar out of him. I'm telling you, he's working on him. <laughs> now, you're, you're here. You're I'm, watching this. I'm standing right there, and that other fella standing over because I knew what was going to happen when he said he killed that dog. Mm. And I figured the other fella would get in it, but he didn't. Finally, he hollered, ho, ho, Louie, he didn't kill your dog. So he stopped. And he told me, he said, asked him a question. He said, why did you tell me you killed my dog? He never would tell him. So he got his collar. He got off, fella. And he told him, he said, uh, I'm going back to my house. My dog don't come home. I'm coming back over here and finish what I started. And that's all Louis said. Went on to the house. Sure enough, the dog did come home. So, <laughs> so the guy was just messing with Louisdale. Well, I guess. But Louisdale wasn't the type that you can mess with. He wasn't going to argue with you. It was just him and Charlie both. 
you know, they didn't mind falling down the dirt with you if that's what you want to do. Now, that that's the part of them I'm still trying to put together the pieces because they were such... Like, you, you get this one feeling that they were just the nicest guys in the they world, were. which they, they were. were. I want to hear how you connect the nicest guy in the world to a guy that'll just fight you in a second. How did that? How does well, that work? Have you ever been in there where people go to arguing and, you know, carrying on? Well, they just wasn't that tight. Charlie wasn't nobody to tangle with. So Charlie was the, was Charlie the real was tough guy. Bad. And Louis was bad. But Charlie got more scrap than Louis did. If you was in the beer joint or anywhere and you got to wanting to argue with him, it was just on. Well, at 73 years old, he was still laying block. Charlie was or Louis? Charlie. Down? Really? He was still laying block he, at 73 yeah, years old? Yeah, he, that boy, he was strong. How, how, how big were they? I, you know, I knew Char- him when I was a kid. Was Louis, was, Louis was about my size. Charlie was t- Charlie, about 5'10". Okay. Charlie was a little bit taller than Louis, and he was, uh, they were both solid. Yeah. They were hands. Kind of stocky guys. Now, their old hands was big. Both of them had big hands. When you shook hands with them, you, you could feel their power. I find it a healthy practice to peer into a world foreign to your own. I've never been a fighter, nor would I condone violence as a productive means of solving disputes. But I do admire their certainty. To continue on in our study of these brothers, I'm going to read from a newspaper clipping from the 1990 edition of the Mina Star. The headline of this newspaper says, Big Fork Man Arrested and Charged with Illegal Whiskey Steal Operation. A Big Fork Man has been released on a $10,000 property bond after being charged with the operation of illegal whiskey steal near the Polk Pike County line. Louis D. Edwards, 40 will be arraigned Monday in Polk County Circuit Court, according to Polk County Sheriff Fred Niblock. Niblock said it is the first still confiscated in Polk County in approximately 11 years. Officers also confiscated 305 pounds of what is believed to be deer meat, 50 to 75 pounds of what is believed to be turkey meat, along with 52 turkey beards at the house, according to the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission enforcement officers. Officers found an operational whiskey still, 165 gallons of fermenting mash and partially filled wooden barrel containing approximately 20 gallons of whiskey at Edwards residence in Big Fork, according to Niblock. Also found were several gallon and half gallon jars of whiskey. (laughs) The officers seized a loaded shotgun and several cartons of rifle and shotgun ammunition at the site along with a 1984 Chevrolet four-wheel drive pickup containing a bottle of what the officers believed to be illegal whiskey. Also confiscated were sugar, yeast, corn, starter mash, and utensils believed to have been used in the illegal production of whiskey. He had a really nice setup. I'll be darned. Do you remember that as a kid? Uh, I wasn't a kid. I was in the United States Army when that happened. Oh, what year was that? 1990. 1990. Here's Neil Taylor with what happened in the Moonshine Raid. There was a guy come over to buy some fish. You know, Louie used to raise catfish. Louie had a little steel there in the, in the fish room, and he was just making it for himself and mainly a, a few of the friends out there, you know. He gave this old boy some. Well, he got drunk and got caught and told the more he got it, you know. So they sent the sheriff from Montgomery County, 
over in Paracamp camouflage and talking about turkey hunting Louie, you know, and and wanted to know if he knew any place he had some. Well, Louie gave him a quart. He gave him some. That's good. He said, can I buy some? Louie said, no. I said, I ain't going to sell it to you. But he said, I'll give you a quart of it. And old Fred Neblick, he was sheriff in. It was re-election, and he thought that that would get him re-elected. So. Oh, it was kind of a political move. Well, to some extent it was, yeah. And they were just after Louisville. And, I, you know, the game wardens, they was all in it. And uh, old Louis, he was there at the house one morning in his camo overalls and barefooted. And all of a sudden, the law cars started pulling up in the front yard. And old Louis opened the door, went out there, and old Fred, he stepped out. And he said, what in the hell is going on, Fred? And uh, they was they was kind of afraid going out there, you know, what what he might do. And he said, well, look, you know, we, we, we heard you had some, uh, well, that you was making whiskey out here. And Louie said, so? He said, well, are you? Louie smiled and said, the best whiskey you ever tasted. <laughs> <laughs> and so they come in there, and, of course, the game wardens, they had to, yeah, there's Phil. They'd been after him all his life. And they come in there, and they took meat out of the freezers, and they got turkey beards he kept through the years. And I don't know. They had him for about $20,000 worth of game violations. And he was up. They had him to jail. They took him to jail, of course. And as up there, and they come in there, and they said, Louis said, we've got you for this, this, this. Now, if you'll plead guilty to this here, said, we'll drop it down to 10000 and he says, boys, he said, I'm not going to plead guilty to a d- thing. And uh, it wound up, but they didn't. I think it cost him about 10 grand on whiskey making. For the record, the idea that the raid was a political move by the sheriff isn't really known for sure, but it was the speculation of many. The Moonshine Raid also included a game and fish raid. However, all the wildlife violations were dropped. It's unclear to me if it was because of faulty procedure in the raid making the evidence unusable in court or if they just couldn't prove that all the wildlife was taken illegally. According to the family, the game and fish had to bring back all the meat and return it to the Edwards freezer. So, according to the law, Louisdale was innocent of the wildlife violations. On a completely irrelevant and tragic side note, Sheriff Fred Niblock would later become the mayor of Cove, Arkansas. And in 1995, he was murdered by a disgruntled 78-year-old man upset about an $18 water bill. The story made national news because the murderer had ridden his lawnmower to the city hall and also used it as a getaway vehicle. David Letterman made a joke about the incident on his late-night show, bringing Arkansas into the national spotlight for the eccentric murder. I bet you weren't expecting that. Here's some more of the backstory on Louisdale's moonshining from Jerry Dean Pickett that paints a little different light on it. For some info, Mr. Mack was Louisdale's father, who only had one hand. Mr. Mack, he had done... His grandpa and his daddy and them all made whiskey. And Mr. Mack had a recipe. And Louisdale told me all along, he said, you know, I ain't never made no whiskey, but I'd like to make it one time just see if I can. Hmm. And uh, 
So he uh, ended up getting a steal. He was making whiskey. He was already making it out there and behind his house in that little old garage, I call it. He wasn't making it to sell or make a living. He just making it to see if he could make it. Him and Charlie, I think he'd run about 10 gallons at a time. Oh. Do you th- did that uh, bother him that he got, that they busted him for that? No. Really? It just I mean, he had to pay a lot of money, though, didn't he? Well, he had to get a lawyer up there at Mena, and they had to go to court and all that. But it didn't bother him. He wasn't mad about that? I mean, nope. But Louie never, I never heard him say a harsh word against none of them that called him. Really? No. So he, he just was kind of okay with it? Yeah, he got a... Was he embarrassed about it, you think? Nope. Just kind of like, just another day on Edwards' farm. He wanted to see if he could make it, but they wasn't making it to make money. They just, Louis wanted just, he wanted to see if he could make it. And yeah. I've tried several times to get him to give me Mac's recipe, and he'd say, oh, Jerry, you don't need Daddy's recipe. It just gets you in trouble. Mm. That's all he'd ever He would He wouldn't give you he, the recipe. Till the day he died, he never gave me that recipe. Everybody agrees that Louisdale never made moonshine again. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame. And we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. 
Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. People at Sport Dog know that having a well-trained hunting dog is more than just having a reliable partner. It's a commitment to their safety and unlocking their full potential. The Sport Dog promise to customers is simple. Gear the way you design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Trust Sport Dog, where innovation meets passion, to elevate your hunting experience and strengthen the bond with your local companion. Using tracking equipment on my squirrel and coon dogs is extremely important to me. To track my squirrel dogs and my one old coon dog that's not very good. Get 20% off your first purchase using the code BEARGREASE. Go to www.sportdog.com slash BEARGREASE to learn more. If you remember on the first episode, the game warden Jimmy Martin made some statements about how he never caught Louis Dell and Charlie, which was correct because during his career, nobody ever caught him. However, before Jimmy Martin became a game warden, they were caught for illegal turkey hunting when they were young. Here's Neil Taylor telling about the brothers getting caught. Let, let me go back. Let me go back to where we was at just a minute ago. I said that Louie never got caught in Charlie. They did get caught one time. When they first started, really, I guess they turkey hunted all their life off and on, but when they really took off serious about it, uh, Louie had no Toyota, and he'd take that thing where a billy goat couldn't go. You could look at the body work on it and tell it. <laughs> but they'd went up this old skid trail top of a mountain, and they'd be out turkey hunting, and they'd kill one. But anyhow, they caught... They had parked down there and walked up the mountain was hid in the brush around Louie's truck. Him and Charlie come out, and they put the bird under the hood and stuff. Started getting the truck, and they come out and arrested them, you know. And old Charlie, they couldn't nobody tell it like Charlie did. He said, after they rode us the tickets, he said, the dumb SOBs ask us for a ride back down the mountain. Louie said, well, sure you give you a ride. Just crawl in the back there. <laughs> <laughs> Old Charlie, he'd get tickled telling him. <laughs> he said, Louie started up and backed up and turned around. He said, he, he looked over at me and he said, Charlie, you better hang on. <laughs> he said, Louie floored that thing. And he said, we went off of that dead gum mountain on that skid trail and hitting them washed out place and he said you'd look back there in the back and he said they'd all be with their hands and hair stuck <laughs> up in the air on their back one time he said next time they'd be coming down <laughs> on their hands and knees <laughs> he said it's a wonder he hadn't killed them he said you know when they stopped at the bottom he said they are so grateful they didn't even thank us for giving them a ride so they did get caught And I don't want to take lightly these guys' disregard for the law or putting someone in danger, but that doesn't erase for me how interesting this story is. If there was a movie about these guys, which there probably should be, this would probably be your favorite scene. I'm just trying to figure all this out because I don't think any of us would condone such behavior or do it ourselves, but it's no doubt intriguing. Author Mark Bowden, in his book Killing Pablo, 
gave some insight into the irony of our intrigue with outlaws. Here's a quote from the book. Quote, the ones immortalized by Hollywood, Al Capone, Bonnie and Clyde, Jesse James, large numbers of average people rooted for them and followed their bloody exploits with some measure of delight. Their acts, however selfish or senseless, were invested with social meaning. Their crimes and violence were blows struck against distant, oppressive power. Their stealth and cunning in avoiding soldiers and police were celebrated, these being the time-honored tactics of the powerless. Man, that sounds familiar. Endearment to an outlaw is the time-honored tactic of the powerless. We'll hear a lot more about this in later episodes. Here's Tony with some more interesting intel. They got caught again. So they did get caught. That was the one time they got caught. No, Dad got caught another time. He'd been hunting down here. Uh, there used to be an old man lived down here named Fred Ferguson. And uh, Dad had went in behind his house that morning, and he'd killed a, a good gobbler. And when he come back out, which Fred was about 75 or 80 years old then, he stopped at Fred's and cleaned it and gave Fred the bird. Well, then Dad went home. Well, I guess the game and fish had heard him shoot or seen him leave Fred's. And they went in and searched and found that turkey and told Fred, call Charlie and tell him to come over here and take his ticket or we're going to take you to jail. And Dad got in his truck and drove back over there and got his ticket. Dad told me, he said, that was $345. That averaged out to less than 30 cents a bird. Today, if you get caught, the law confiscates vehicles, guns, and all kind of stuff, along with fines that can cripple a man which we all believe is a good thing. Again, I think Charlie's sentiment clearly shows this was a different era. Back then, it was just a ticket and a $345 fine. I'll let you do the math on how many turkeys Charlie claimed to kill. This also gives us a one-time glimpse into what these guys did with some of the meat. In this case, Charlie gave it to the elderly landowner. If you remember, the game warden didn't think they killed as many turkeys as people believed because of the unsolved issue about what was done with all the meat. However, one thing every single person agreed on is that they would never waste any meat. Here's Neil giving us some insight on some of what they did with it. You know, I, I know that a lot of old people, old ladies and stuff, and even if some of the old men, they got too old to get out. Louie would take them deer meat. He'd take them turkey breast. It, it, when, it, when he gave somebody like that, and to me or you, he might give a shoulder instead <laughs> of ribs, too. Yeah. But them old people like that, he took the best cuts to them. He'd take them, if he took them tenderloin, some of them were women, he took them a young tenderloin, or he'd give them the breast. Yeah. Turkey. Uh. When I mentioned to somebody about their ethic around meat, they said, Turkey poachers only take the breasts. Well, I wanted to get to the bottom of this. Here's Jerry Dean. I've heard it said that he had a really strong ethic for not wasting meat. He would not hunt nothing, anything that he didn't eat. They would waste nothing. I mean, a lot of these people take the breast out of a turkey and throw the rest of it away. No, no, we we take all the dark meat. And... Really? So even even if he was illegally killed a turkey and was 
sneaking it out in his pants pockets. He was taking the drumsticks and the thighs and everything. You didn't leave nothing but the gobble. I had another person off the record confirm to me that they always took the entire turkey and never just breasted it out. I got a question for you. Have you ever breasted out a turkey and not used the thighs and drumsticks? Be honest, because I sure have. With today's wild game movement, most people are now keeping and using the dark meat on a turkey. Back in the day, I'm telling you, they didn't do that. But these boys were doing this long before it was cool. Again, I'm not saying it made poaching right. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying it's an interesting point. Here's Stoney with some more details. We ate everything. I've I've had a lot of friends that would go hunting with us, and they would sit there and bone out a deer. Well, most of them don't take ribs, and they don't take necks. And there's not a lot of meat on ribs or necks, either one. But when we get home, what we don't eat, our dogs do. Because we've got a cook pot that's as big as this table. We'll take ribs, we take coon carcasses, possum carcasses. We don't skin coons in the woods. We bring them home, skin them out, carcass goes in the freezer. When we've got enough in there, we fill the pot up. That pot will feed dogs for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. When they were growing up, that's all the dogs ate was there wasn't Varmint going to town carcasses. and get yeah. dog food stuff. When I was a kid, that pot cooking in the front yard, they just built a big pine knot fire under that pot. So they had a really strong thing about not wasting meat. No, none of it goes to waste. As long as they knew you were taking it to eat, they did not have a, a problem with it. Here's Stoney talking about the only time they turned somebody else in to the game and fish. They came from a, a different era and just had a mentality about taking more game than they were allotted. Like, why did why do you think they thought they could do that? Would they have been mad at somebody else if somebody else had been like that? Like, if there had been another nope. another guy, a couple mountains over, that was nope. just as big a big a outlaw as them. I seen them turn one person in in my whole life. They called. They went, drove out, and called game fishing. Really? And Who that was, was this? For wasting meat. We were hunting down on South Boundary. Mm-hmm. That was the only year we'd camped down there, and there were some people camped down just below us, and they had four carcasses laying there, and they, had, they hadn't even skinned them. They'd cut the back straps out of them, and the whole rest of the deer, were, all four deer were laying there. And my uncle drove by that, and he said, that ain't going to fly. And he drove from there to Langley and called Game Fish and had it, got them up there, and, and they got rope tickets. Yeah. Interesting stuff. These next two stories are just straight up entertaining that continue to paint a picture of who these characters were. Here's Andy Brown. I don't know. He just, I miss him. I miss him every day. You know, I think about everybody's got a Louisdale story. And, you know, I've, <laughs> one of the funniest stories of all time, probably this, if, if I'd had this on tape, I would, I would have been a millionaire. Because, uh, <laughs> Back when I first went to work for the company I worked for, I had uh, insured a house that Louisdale owned over between Big Fork and Opal. Charlie lived in it with his wife. And so when I insured it, we had a field man, Charles Glywell. He's one of the greatest guys I ever met in my life. And, and, so, and so we pulled up over at Charlie's and 
got out and they had a Rottweiler dog that you could have rode. I mean, he was a monster sitting on the porch, you know, <laughs> but I mean, you know, we get by the Rottweiler dog and we go in and I said to Charlie, I said, I said, we need to look at your breaker box. And he, I can't remember what his wife's name was, but she was really nice. He said, take them in there and show them where the breaker box is. So we walk in this, <laughs> we walk in this bedroom and there's this big old cage. I mean, a big cage and the, <laughs> <laughs> the breaker box is over on the wall and anyway charlie goes over and looks at it and takes a picture of it and and about that time this fox squirrel comes running out on this they've got this tree for the limbs cut and this fox squirrel comes running out there and i said i said oh you've got a pet squirrel and she says oh yeah she says this thing thinks i'm its mama and she just reaches over and opens up the cage <laughs> that squirrel just hops up on her shoulder on her <laughs> it's sitting there popping its tail like that and charlie is standing about about 18 inches from her and charlie's dressed nice he's got his tie on and his white shirt and his knit pants and about that time Charlie goes, oh, that, that's a nice squirrel. And about that time, that thing just hops over on Charlie. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Charlie. He just froze. He just stiffened up. And when she, when she reached to get that squirrel, that squirrel clay just ringed him like a dead snake. <laughs> he, he had those knit pants up. <laughs> and what it did... He just stiffened up like and he went. Ah! <laughs> he screamed like a wildcat. <laughs> anyway, she finally got the, got the squirrel off him. Of course, he had knit pants and claws and did him like that. I was out of control. I couldn't even catch my breath. But anyway, that's a funny uh, story. But That's hilarious. So they had a pet fox squirrel in their house. He screamed like a wildcat. I'll never in my life forget Andy belly laughing about this 30 years after it happened. Here's another interesting story about Louis Dell's appreciation of rattlesnakes and the Edwards brothers' choice of footwear. This is Jackie Ryan, the guy that nearly got shot when he prank called Louis Dell. We was turkey out one morning coming off a mountain and and I mean, we stepped right. I mean, just we went airborne all the same time, but uh, a huge rattler just and they rattled right there and and we scattered. Well, I, I mean, he said, "Leave it be. Don't don't mess with it." Said he could have been either one of us, you know. And uh, he's told me stories here just not three or four years ago or five maybe about one. Uh, he was over turkey hunting one morning and and at daylight and and. Uh, he heard some rustling in the leaves, and and uh, he said there was a monster one come right up between his legs, and him sitting there against a tree. Is that right? That he had sat down on it. It was just cold that morning. You know, it was early spring. I'll be done. And uh, he just didn't ever believe in killing rattlesnakes. I seen him catch one. We'd been over fishing on the costot, and he was out there barefooted. At at dark, it was just after dark, and and got him a stick, a little forked stick, and he caught that thing, and got it by the back of the head and put it in the back of the truck and carried it back over with him over at Baylock. I mean, I never did know him kill one. So I he mean, turned it loose over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, he's after he's scared. So he liked people. rattlesnakes. I like that. I like rattlesnakes yeah. too. And he wore tennis shoes. I mean, when he went hunting, most every time he went, he wore tennis shoes. Did he really? Oh yeah. Yeah, he, he didn't wear hunting shoes. boots. No, <laughs> did he not? No, he'd wear tennis shoes all the time. He did about any kind of hunting. He did. He wore tennis shoes. Yep. Now, this is new news to me. <laughs> he always what did. What about crossing creeks and getting wet and all oh, that? He didn't care about that. He weighed right out in it. It didn't matter. And just wear wet tennis oh, shoes, yeah. and, and I'm sure cotton yeah. socks. He probably didn't. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what socks he wore, <laughs> but I know he wore them tennis shoes all the time. He did out in Colorado, too. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah, he'd wear tennis shoes. I don't remember him wearing many boots. He did back uh, years did ago. Did he work in boots? I don't think he done a whole lot in boots, really, to really? be honest. He yeah, didn't even work in leather boots. He wore tennis shoes most of the time. Oh, my. Okay, Jackie, you don't know what you've done because this wrecks my philosophy. I have a really strong <laughs> philosophy on footwear, and you are well inside the bounds. You're wearing a beautiful pair of probably red wing boots. I don't know if they're Mason's. red wing. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got my schnees on. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't like to go anywhere where I don't have a good oh, leather boot on. Me either. Was he ever bit by a snake that you know? Not that I know of. I heard Charlie was one time a squirrel hunting. He they said he'd squirrel hunt barefooted, you know, because where he'd slip around and got bit by a copperhead, but. I mean, that just what so they Charlie told me. hunted squirrels barefoot. Oh yeah, I believe it. And I think they they had competitions. I mean, you know, they was they was competitive with each other. They had yeah. to, you know, and and I think Louie always thought Charlie was a better squirrel hunter than he was. Mm. Now maybe not on anything else, but squirrels, I think he, you yeah. know. He thought Charlie was a better squirrel hunter. I wouldn't want to have been a squirrel in the woods no, anywhere no. near them. He's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Louis Dale was a woodsman in the truest sense of the word. He knew the woods like the back of his hand and how to gain resource from it. He spent more time in the woods in a year than most people would in a lifetime. To hear that he wore tennis shoes kind of puts all our fancy gear into perspective. I had a question for Stoney about some of the deer his uncle and dad killed. Honestly, I was hoping to see some of the racks. I was very surprised at what he said. Did uh, did your dad or Louis Dell ever kill any? I mean, I know they did real big bucks. Oh yeah. Have you got some of their horns still? Nope. You don't have any of their horns. Uncle Odell's got two deer hanging on his wall. About four years ago, we had been running all morning, and we got back to his house, and uh, I heard two of my dogs, three of my dogs. They'd been running five hours, and I heard them come across the mountain up there. And Uncle Odell run to the truck and got his gun, and uh, he said they'll come out at the corral down there. And I said, all right. Well, the corral's 300 yards. Well, we looked up, and here comes this buck across the field, and he's coming right straight at us. Well, he got out there and turned broadside, and Uncle Odell said, shoot him. I said, I I can't. He's 150, 160 yards. He's out of my... He's got a six millimeter in his hand. I said, you shoot him. And he... Boom! He turned the circle there and fell over, and I, and he was, he's a nice, nice 11 point. And I told Uncle Odell, I said, we need to go get that one mounted. Well, we we sat down right there before we even went to the deer, because you can still hear the dogs. They was a mile behind him. Oh, my goodness. You can still hear the dogs running. I said, they'll be out here in a minute. Let them, let them find him, you know. And 
directly here you see all three of them coming across the field right up there and circling that deer and we went ahead and drove out there then and i don't know if he was more proud of the deer or the dogs because mm-hmm. uh, he sat there petting on them and feeding them liver and you need to ha- you need to put that deer in this uh gas station uncle odell's got three sets of horns that he's kept his entire life one's his bow kill elk five by five elk that buck there and then year before last he killed a nice nine point did they not uh, saw off horns and just keep them in the barn or something yeah but they gave them away over the years just gave them away yeah dad killed a killed a 13 point that had a 23 inch inside spread and uh my nephew came came from tulsa and dad gave him the horns wow and they killed a lot of nice ones over the years but the, the horns just didn't mean much to them didn't mean anything they really give, they give they give away their deer horns they just when we're at deer camp during that week it's all important them big bucks who killed the biggest buck when we go home that night last night of camp none of it matters anymore in fact when we're packing up camp oh, you can have them horns if you want them That was surprising to me that they didn't care about the horns. It doesn't fit the stereotypical ideas we have about, quote, poachers. But it does fit the character of Louis Dell and Charlie. I'd sooner give away my truck than a set of whitetail antlers. Does that make me a trophy hunter? Louis Dell and Charlie were serious deer hunters, and the only way they cared about killing one is if it was in front of a dog. And for the purpose of the expansion of our worldview, I'll mention this. Dog deer hunters have often been known to think that still hunters, tree stand hunters, guys that hunt over corn piles and food plots aren't real sportsmen. They believe it takes more skill and dedication to craft to kill a deer in front of a dog. And when you hear their side, it's hard to argue with. The purpose of this is not to incite an argument or debate of whether the doctrine is right or wrong because there isn't an answer. I've always talked about supporting all legal methods of hunting. Stuff like this teaches me the world is much bigger than my small window into it and my personal preferences in my style of hunting. And I respect the way a man wants to hunt, as long as it's within the boundaries of the law. What Stoney is about to say is controversial but he's speaking for his own father and uncle who can no longer speak for themselves. And I think he's got the right to express the mechanics of their mentality. For anybody to hang a a poacher stigma on them, I believe is wrong. According to game laws, they were poaching. According to our forefathers, they were doing what they were supposed to. I mean, and that's the way they looked at it. If I come into your house and tell you how to eat your corn, you know, you have to have this much butter on it, and you can only have 10 pieces, you're going to tell me to go to When they come into our home, which I'm sorry, these mountains are their home, all of them, not just the land they own, all of these mountains are their home. When you come into their home and say, well, here's all these deer, you can only kill this one or this one, but leave all these alone, they're going to tell you to go to if you go back far enough, our country is founded on that very principle. Those guys got tired of England telling them what they could and could not have. Well, the people that moved in here weren't very far removed from those people that told England to go to 
So they grew up with that mentality right here in this mm-hmm. valley. And uh, it still exists to a point. We're more civilized now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the need isn't there now. I asked Neil Taylor a question about how the community dealt with these guys killing more than their share. How do you, how did people perceive that? Because everybody knew that these were turkeys that, you know, they were taking away more than their share. What was your perception of the way people in the community handled that? Well, I mean, not everybody knew it. You know, people's way of thinking changed from time to time. From when you was a kid, you already see a huge difference in how people think and takes different things. Yeah. It's totally different. There was still enough of the old-timers back then that they didn't care. There was plenty of turkeys for them and everybody else, too. There wasn't near that many turkey hunters back then. Right. I, I could go out and go hunting and, and never see a vehicle, hardly. Now you go out there and there's four or five vehicles where you've been scouting out on opening morning, you know. A lot of people started coming in from the cities, you know. And, and there was a few people that didn't like it at all, I mean, you know. You know, I, I, what you said about how people's mentalities change over time, that's a, that's a very real thing that's hard to calibrate. Like, I think today, I feel like today, even though certainly there's still people that break the law, it's much more common for people to pretty much obey the law. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that, you know. People are more educated about the science of game management. Well, even if they're ones or not back then, to call call a game warden, you had to go to the house. Now they need, or they can take a picture of you and your tags right there. Yeah. And call right there and follow you, you know. Right. Okay. So, yeah, technology has made enforcement easier, which has made people it, be it more has. apt to obey the law. But I don't think that that's as much is as what some people think it is. I think it's the the mentality of thinking. What Neil's tapping into is 100% true. We have too many examples throughout history of a shifting value system. And it doesn't make what happened before necessarily right. It just helps us make sense of how some stuff happened. I wanted to ask Stoney something, and I had no idea what he would say. What are the things that you, you would pound the table for for your kids or grandkids in terms of the values that they had that you would want them to have i want my kids to be law-abiding in in that, this day and time you go buy a car well if you mess up the game fish can take that car back in their prime when this was going on game fish didn't have that power i mean you get a fine all right we'll pay it and go on I want my kids to pound the table for their guns, and my boys believe in their guns. And I want them to pound the table for their right to hunt and to hunt the way they want to, be it bows and arrows or guns or black powder or spear chucking. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but I also want them to pound the table for conservation. There's a touch of that bear grease redemption that we've all been looking for inside of that. It's pretty powerful to hear Stoney, Charlie's son, say that about conservation. It took this family a little bit longer to get there, but I think the Edwards have shifted their positions in a lot of ways. 
Here's Jerry Dean. They may have been some game wardens that could have caught him when he was young, but I'd have, I'd have liked to have seen them because they'd have been tough. They probably some of them sit out there the last 15 years of his life trying to catch him and he was home eating breakfast. Undoubtedly, the last 15 years of their lives, Louis Dell and Charlie slowed down on violating game laws. Many people said this. It would be a cute bow tie in this story to say that they had a change of heart, that they could look back and say that they'd done stuff wrong. But I don't really know if that's true. Perhaps they just simply slowed down physically, or maybe the penalties for game violations increased to the point that they couldn't risk losing it all. We'll never really know. Would it change the way that you feel about them at the end of this story if they'd realized the error of their ways and changed? I guess the game and fish will always know him as an outlaw. Well, I guess a lot of other people are outlaws too, but uh, the world would be a whole lot better if everybody was like old Lewis. I, that's all I can say about the guy. If I was falling on a rope somewhere, he'd be the one I wanted on the other end of the rope. I want anything. Here's Neil with a very interesting take on Louis Dell and Charlie. Well, a lot of people would laugh at this, and I find it kind of comical, but it's the truth. They, kind of, they was kind of modern-day Robin Hoods. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, you know, I mean, Robin Hood, he was an outlaw by the government. He would kill the king's uh, game, and uh, he robbed from the rich. Now, Louis didn't rob, but... He, in a way, he did rob some games, some people people might think, but he but he gave a lot of a meat away, like I said, to old people on fixed incomes, like yeah. that, you know. And you could always count on him to help you. Yeah. Their kind will never be again. They was pretty much the last of a of a type of people. And I miss them. Oh Louis, you know, he uh he was quick to get mad, but he was quick to laugh, too, you know. Quick to forgive. Why won't there be other people like them? Well, it just, it, it takes, the times that they lived through will never be again. You know, that's what develops a person, what they are, what they've lived through. Like I said, the, the mentality and the, and the thoughts of the people that raised them and they grew up around are, them people are no more. Man, I don't know what to say. I've had a lot of people that I trust question why I highlighted these men, but I've also had a lot of people that I trust thank me for it. As we come to the close of this biography section of this series, I'm still conflicted, but I have noted one thing. People that knew these men were much more apt to extend mercy to them. And I'm not saying that mercy means condoning illegal activity. It just means they weren't ready to lock them up. People that never knew these men were much more likely to want justice. I envisioned some other podcaster making a series on some outlaws that I didn't know. Maybe some hillbillies from Alabama that just wore the turkeys out. I have a feeling I might be like, how the heck could these guys use their platform to highlight those heathen criminals? 
These guys are the biggest threat to the North American model of wildlife conservation I've ever seen. Lock them up. <laughs> Honestly, I might say that, but I think we're all full of paradoxes. And I think that face-to-face human relationship with other people means all the difference in a whole bunch of stuff. And that's what makes life interesting. One thing is for sure, we're entertained and intrigued by outlaws for better or worse. And after exploring the fullness of these guys' story, I am still proud to have known these men. And I think their story is of great value. Man, thanks so much for listening to Bear Grease. On the next episode, we're going to find out why we love outlaws. And I don't want to leave you with a nondescript cliffhanger, but I really doubt you're going to want to miss the next episode. Please leave us a review on iTunes and share this podcast with a friend. We've got our famous Bear Grease hats back in stock at TheMeatEater.com, so check that out too. But hey, now I want to give you some of that bonus material. This is some interesting stuff that I couldn't fit into the main podcast. You guys remember the game warden Jimmy Martin from the first episode who spent his whole career chasing Louis Dell and Charlie. Well, after our interview, I asked him if he remembered the time that he stopped me. He said he had zero recollection of it, so I proceeded to tell him the story. I do want to tell you about our run-in that you don't remember. Listen to this. (laughs) I've never told this story publicly. I was 16 years old. Right. And it was a Friday night. Oh, no. And I had a blue-tick coonhound named Thunder, and he got loose. I I heard him way off somewhere, treed, long, like just as far as I could hear. Somehow I knew he was treed down in this hollow. And it, was, uh, it wasn't coon season. I, I want to say it was the summer. And I had my coon light that had my pistol attached to the belt all in one deal. And, oh, no. and when I, I, did, I, I had to go get the dog, and I grabbed my coon belt, and I had my pistol on there and my light, and I jumped on a four-wheeler. And now this is where the story gets interesting. I had decided that if there was a coon in the tree, I was going to shoot yeah. it. Just I was it was a young dog, and he's treed down there, right? And it's just like, I, it's in my heart. I was like, I'm going to shoot this coon, but I wasn't coon hunting. Well, I jump on my dad's four wheeler, and it didn't have lights, no lights on the four wheeler. So I'm running with a headlamp, my coon lamp, shining, riding a four wheeler. Well, to get to the dog, I had to jump out on the highway, and I was riding. It's after dark, and I'm riding in the ditch of the highway going down to get to my neighbor's land, and he, he would have known, you know, he'd been a good friend of mine. Right. And I was going to drive down to his driveway and then go into the woods and get the dog. Well, as soon as I get out onto the highway, there's one truck coming, and it's you. Oh, no. And so oh. you see this coon light coming down the road and you're like what's going on anyway i see you turn around you put on your lights and i just go oh no and you come over to me and you say son what are you doing and i and i was i honestly was just like honest to a fault i said sir i'm coon hunting and i didn't even have 
I mean, I was 16, so I just didn't have the wherewithal to like really give you the whole story right, right. of what was happening. And I just told you I was coon hunting. And you said, is it coon season? And I said, I don't think so. And you pulled out your book and you looked through, and you knew it wasn't coon season, but you looked through and you said, look here. Well, mm, turns out it's not. And, uh, and you said, well, take off your gun and your light belt and give it to me. And so... I gave you my gun and my light belt. Oh, no. There and you are with no light. That's right. And I didn't tell you that. And uh, and you said, meet me at the courthouse tomorrow at noon. And so you get in the truck with my light and drive off. And then I've got a four-wheeler with no lights. And I drive all the way home with no lights. Oh, my goodness. And then uh, I... What a jerk. So huh? the next day... <laughs> I mean, you treated me with complete respect. The next day... I show up at the courthouse and I, I'm scared to death, you know, and I really didn't break the law on purpose. I mean, I, I've always been, even since a kid, straight laced. I mean, I broke, I broke laws on accident and some on purpose that, it, you know, right. it's happened. So I meet you at the courthouse and you, you probably got a little more of the story from me. And you said, Clay, I was on my way last night to break up a party out at Inc. at at the river down there somewhere. And he said, and here you are, minding your own business, coon hunting. He said, and, and you, you reached in and grabbed the belt and gave it to me and said, just said, go on your way. So you didn't give me a ticket. Well, good. <laughs> That's good. So you have no recollection of that. No. Man, that, it happened just like that. Oh, man, I was a nervous wreck that night. Lucky for me, Jimmy showed me mercy. I had another question for Jimmy about Louis Dell and Charlie. Were they the most notorious guys you ever chased, I guess, in your time? They would have been in Polk County, but there were lots of others in other counties. Of course, my district was six counties that we worked. So we worked some good ones out of Scott County and Yale County. and We had Louis Dells, but they were in other counties. The other ones that I ran into that, and I had to help work on weren't as likable as Charlie and Louisville, if that's a good way to put it. Yeah. They, uh, the others were just out for what they could get. And if they weren't making money, well, they just, they just didn't enjoy what they were doing. They were just doing it to get even, I guess, in these other counties. They were getting as much as they could get. But if Louisville and Charlie may have been getting as much as they could get, but they, you liked them for it. You guys remember Uncle Andy from the first podcast? He was the 10-year-old brother of Carl Edwards that was killed by police. He was involved in that shootout. Here's Jerry Dean. So you knew Andy Edwards? Oh, yeah. Uncle Andy? Yeah. Yeah. Did he have part of his ear shot yes, off? Yes, sir. <laughs> what 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 part of his ear was shot it off? It was the top part of his ear. I'll be darned. Yeah, me and Andy, he was Uncle Andy's. That's what we yeah, call him, Uncle Andy and Aunt Ruby. Here's another interesting clip from Jerry Dean about Louis Dell's character. Charlie was a fine fellow, but he uh, he wasn't worried about material things. Louis had the best business mind, of, mm-hmm. and he done well, you know, with his job. And, and he treated everybody that worked for him the way he wanted to be treated. Mm. I mean, you were, you wasn't out nothing when you worked for him. Louis Edwards, and he paid good money. He took care of his workers. He took care of everybody. Yeah, Louis was a fine fella, and most people 
thought he's an outlaw, but if you ever had anybody you wanted as your friend, he'd be the man to pick. I had heart surgery 10 years ago. Louis told me, and most people don't know it, but he told me, he said, don't worry about nothing. You need anything, I, you know, I pay for it. I'm here, and I, he offered to pay my bills. Really? Yeah. He was that tight. And, uh, but let me tell you something. Money didn't mean nothing to him. Hmm. That's why anybody. he was... That's why he could be so generous. You feel like it's because well, money didn't. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't a multimillionaire, but I guess you'd say uh, he made money. Money didn't make him. You understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's really something everybody ought to met. Him and my daddy, finest two fellas I ever met. Here's Jerry on Louis Dell as a dog man. Louis Dell would have been just an all-around woodsman. Correct. Tell me about the kind of dogs he had. Oh, man. <laughs> like what What types of dogs? He had squirrel dogs. He had squirrel dogs, deer dogs, coon dogs. I'm adding hog dogs. Hog dogs. Louis probably had, at one time, he probably had 20 dogs. Uh, he still had good squirrel dogs when he passed away. He kept dogs all his life. He was a dog man. Here's Jerry on Louis Dell's willingness to take people hunting. We'll probably learn on a later episode how willing he was to even entertain undercover officers, too. No doubt, Louis Dell and Charlie shared their passion for turkey hunting with anyone that wanted to go. Some of the turkey hunters wouldn't even tell you where they're going to go turkey hunting if they heard a turkey. Louis would tell you, say, go right over there, there's one there. He'd tell anybody where the turkeys are at. Hmm. You know, he wasn't no type to uh, be stingy about anything. He'd take them. People that never had even turkey hunting, he'd take them, put them out there, and uh, let them kill one. Yeah. And most turkey hunters ain't that way. Yeah, exactly. And that's another thing about Louis. There's a lot of young boys, like John now, that Louis Dell has taught how to, to turkey hunt. And it just wasn't his family. You know, it was anybody that wanted to come, he'd, he'd teach you what he could. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll check in with you next week on the Bear Grease Render. Market House has the cleanest, leanest, juiciest meat and seafood shipped to your home overnight. Expect the service of a local butcher and the convenience of a large supplier. Unlike many online butchers, you can grab just one meal's worth or lock in for a subscription box. Choose from grass-fed and grass-finished beef, American Wagyu, free-range poultry, grass-fed lamb, wild-caught king crab, seafood, and more. For 15% off your first order, use code COUNTRY at checkout. Just visit markethouse.com. That's M-A-R-K-E-T-H-O-U-S-E dot com. And use the code COUNTRY. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order.